Welcome to Australian Hiker. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 82 of the Australian Hiker podcast. In today's episode, I'm going to be going through and talking about the equipment that I've gone through and settled on over the last 12 months. This equipment was what I took with me on my recent Bibbleman track trip uh, over five weeks and a thousand kilometres. And I think after doing such an intense sort of trip, I've pretty much got uh, my gear selection sorted out and settled. Um, and I just wanted to go through and discuss my reasons for choosing what I did, as well as some of the high-profile pieces of gear, and some of the gear that worked well for me, and some of the gear that didn't work so well for me on this trip. We hope you enjoy. Okay, as I said, just recently I've gone through and finished my Bibbleman track trip in Western Australia. And this was a five-week-long trip covering a 1,000 kilometres from Albany to Perth. And I think um, one of the things that I've been working on for the last couple of years is to try and get my equipment uh, fine-tuned as far as possible. So the gear that I took with me uh, was um, as useful as possible, uh, as comfortable as possible, and as lightweight as possible. Um, And I think um, this is something that that all hikers, not struggle with, but all hikers are constantly looking at uh, over the the duration of their hikes to work out what works well for them and what needs to be changed. Having done such an intense period of hiking, uh, it gave me a good opportunity to go through and uh, really make sure that things worked as well as they should do uh, and to find out where where there are any issues as far as the equipment that I was using. So the first thing I want to go through and talk about is how I went through or how I go through and choose my equipment. In past episodes, I've gone through and talked about um, choosing gear for, for hiking um, and, and certainly there are a number of different factors that you can look at. And these things include weight, cost, durability, function, uh, and just I happen to like the look of it sort of uh, uh, as being another option for choosing gear as well. One thing that this trip really focused me on was um, what was important to me. So in choosing my equipment, um, there were three main criteria that I looked at, and these were uh, trying to choose the lightest, most compact gear where possible, choosing equipment that is comfortable, uh, and choosing equipment that meets my needs. And sometimes these three were a bit at odds. So there were some instances where I didn't necessarily go with the lightest gear that I could have done, um, and I've gone for heavier gear only because I found it was more comfortable and suited what I wanted to do. So while I'm trying to become an ultralight hiker or a lightweight hiker, um, I'm not going to um, discard comfort or discard uh, versatility uh, for the sake of weight. 
So I think um, I'll go through and look at the, the main pieces of equipment and the things I really learnt from this trip in relation to uh, new pieces of gear. So I won't cover every piece of equipment. And in fact, um, if you go to the um, website uh, and the show notes, I'll go through and put a, um, uh, a list uh, that you can go through and see uh, exactly what, pe- what pieces of gear that I took with me. And there's quite a few individual items. Okay, so probably uh, the most obvious one is the pack. This is the thing that you're carrying on your back for however long you're going to be hiking. Um, and for me, uh, for the last few years, I've been using the Osprey Exos 48 uh, litre pack. And in my size, it's actually a 51 litre pack. My main reason for choosing this piece of equipment is the suspension system. Um, I have a personal preference for the trampoline style of suspension systems that allow for airflow across the back. A lot of packs that have a lot of foam padding will actually, um, while they might be very comfortable on the back, they tend to produce a lot of back sweating. Uh, and for me, I just find the suspension system on the Exos, whether it's mid-30 degrees Celsius uh, down to zero degrees Celsius, uh, I don't tend to get a sweaty back. Uh, and that's really the, the criteria that I, I pick my pack on. Uh, there are a lot of good, very good packs on the market. Um, but as I said, I just like the suspension system on this pack. One of the other things in relation to the packs um, tend to be the water protection uh, systems. Now, because I was carrying a fair amount of podcasting equipment, and that included a um, a, a mini iPad, it included a digital recorder, um, it included um, my iPhone, um, as well as uh, a few other pieces of electronics, I had a real concern about getting things either wet from rain or wet from falling in water at some stage. So I tended to go a bit overkill on the water protection. So inside my pack, I had a pack liner. Um, every piece of gear inside that pack, with a few exceptions like a spoon or a couple of other little small pieces, went inside another waterproof bag um, that, as an example, my clothing was inside its own special waterproof bag. My first aid gear was inside a waterproof bag. Um, So what that means from my perspective is if it's pouring with rain and I need to open my pack up to start to grab something and there's no shelter, uh, the entire contents of my pack is not going to get wet. Now, a lot of people I know don't tend to have the amount of dry bags. They might be lucky to have one and that's it. Um, But on my trip, uh, my 36-day trip, I had eight days where it didn't rain. um, And at no stage did any of my gear get wet. uh, And that was including in very torrential, windblown downpours of rain. On the outside of the pack, I also had a pack cover. Uh, Now, the pack cover really only protects the majority of the pack. Uh, If you get water running down your back, um, it doesn't necessarily stop uh, the water from getting into the pack that's the the part of the pack that's not protected, which is what's against your back. But again, I come back to my selection of pack. 
Um, even though I had quite heavy rain for, for multiple days, um, there was no water getting in through that exposed area of pack. Um, whereas had I had a pack that had been hard up against my back, the potential was for it was to soak through. So again, it's a bit of overkill having a pack liner as well as a pack cover. Um, but for the sake of a, a fairly minimal weight in post, I think that um, it makes a big difference to, to keeping everything dry. The next main change that I went through on this trip uh, was my shelter. Now, usually when I'm hiking, it's with Jill, um, and the main our main tent of choice these days is the Big Agnes Copperspur uh, Two Tent, uh, which is a two-person tent, but it's a bit on the tight side. Uh, in this case, I actually chose the Nemo two-person tent, uh, and I'll be honest here, it's when you compare the measurements of the tent, um, it's really a one-and-a-half-person tent. I could have actually gone for the Nemo one-person tent. I would have saved a total of 100 grams of weight, and I thought for the additional um, 100 grams impost by carrying the two-person version, it means that I could quite comfortably get my pack and all my equipment inside my tent. And as I said, there were... Uh, Four days on my trip that I did actually use the tent, uh, I had uh, three of those were actually quite heavy rain, um, and um, I didn't have to worry about getting in and outside the tent uh, to grab gear uh, or the gear getting wet outside the tent in the vestibule. So I'll do a full write-up on uh, all the equipment that I took on this trip. Uh, a number of pieces of equipment I already have, but there's still a few pieces that I haven't done. And over the next week, I'll actually get those up online. The other big learning curve in um, on this trip was um, I had decided to go for a slightly smaller water bladder. I prefer to use bladders rather than bottles. Uh, and I opted for a two and a half litre bladder. Um, that for me was probably one of the mistakes on this trip. Um, I decided that a two and a half litre bladder was marginally lighter than a three litre bladder. And, um, I, uh, I decided that, um, uh, particularly when I was doing big days of 35 to 45 kilometres, uh, that I had to stop and refill the bladder. Not totally, but I just needed additional water. The two and a half litres wasn't enough. So, um, in hindsight, I should have gone for the three litre bladder. And that's now become, uh, my preferred bladder of choice. And even if I don't, have, don't fill it up, I might only put a litre in there if the, if the water supply is plentiful. Um, having, uh, having that three litre capacity available was a better option. The other big change for me on this trip was I bought a new jet boil stove. Now, normally when Jill and I go uh, camping together, we use the jet boil Minimo. Um, and it works quite well for two people. It manages to boil enough water for rehydrating food and for having a hot drink at the end of the day. But I decided it was a bit of overkill for just one person. So I actually went for the jet boil flash. I bought a new stove specifically for this trip. It, it's the smallest of the jet boils. Um, and it mean, means that it took up a lot less space. Uh, because the uh, the flash is actually a smaller diameter uh, cooking pot. 
Um, it worked really well for me. Um, it uh, cooked the right amount of water or boiled the right amount of water for the food that I wanted. And one of the big learning curves for me on this trip, um, the vast majority of people, uh, and in fact, every hiker I saw that had a stove apart from me was using uh, the gas canisters and the little screw on um, stove units rather than the jet boils. Um, and if you look at just the weight of the stove unit uh, and the lightweight pot compared to the jet boils, in most cases, those freestanding stove units will often tend to be lighter weight. But what I did find is um, um, I tend to use uh, two cups of hot water a day for a hot drink. I then also tend to rehydrate food. So I'm using roughly around about five minutes worth of gas a day. So a 100-gram gas cylinder, which will last around about an hour, um, lasts me about 12 days. And that does it quite comfortably. I'm never, I've, over the duration of the trip, I didn't run short at any stage. Um, so I was finding that most other hikers that were cooking food as opposed to rehydrating were using a lot more gas and as a result, they were using bigger gas cylinders, which pushed their weight back up again because the uh, the freestanding stoves tend not to be as efficient uh, in their, their water uh, boiling capacity. Um, I actually did a post on one of the uh, one of the trip days where I was getting I, I came across one gentleman in particular who had two 500 gram gas cylinders and he said he used about one of those every five days um, and it just amazed me the amount of gas that people were using so as I said um, the jet boil not the lightest of stoves when you look at it just on a pure weight basis but in an actual use um, it made a big difference so what kind of difference was that? You said that uh, the other person got about five days out of uh, one of those 500-gram canisters. 500-gram gas canisters are roughly around about 600 grams in weight, uh, So as opposed to the 100-gram canisters, which are about 195 grams in weight. So it's roughly about 400 grams of additional weight um, because they were using um, uh, that type of stove and doing a particular type of cooking. They were actually cooking and not just rehydrating. But you said that you you um, yours lasted longer for the kind of heating that you were doing. So how much longer? Well, as I said, for, for me, the little 100-gram cylinders were lasting 12 days as opposed to not everyone was using the big 500-gram cylinders. Most people were using the 240 grams, uh, which were roughly around about 300, 325 grams in weight. Um, and they were, again, they were going through those on a fairly regular basis. I was the only person on the entire trip, and I saw a number of hikers that were using the 100-gram cylinders. Everyone was using at least the 240s or the 500s. So, and that, that was quite surprising for me. I, and I'd never, never actually used one of the, uh, the freestanding little stoves before. Um, I had always thought about, well, maybe it is an efficient way of doing things. But having the self-contained jet boils that are an, an integrated system, they're very, a very efficient stove as far as uh, water boiling. And as I said, I don't tend to cook on the trail. I'm only, re I'm only boiling water. Um, and for me, the jet boil is by far the best option. 
And I think that's the point because what you're saying is for you, um, so it does depend on the kind of cooking that you're doing, um, how often and, uh, you know, I guess even how, how many people are in your group. Yeah, and I, and I think certainly for a number of people, I, I love food. Uh, I love cooking at home. I hate cooking when I'm out hiking. All I want to do is just boil some water, rehydrate a commercially prepared meal and eat it 10, 15 minutes later. And I know a lot of people don't think that way. They prefer to do their own meals. Um, but one of the issues with coming into Western Australia was just before I turned up over there, there was an instance where uh, a gentleman had come from interstate. He'd gone through and done uh, his own rehydration and he had an, a fair amount of it confiscated because quarantine decided it wasn't appropriate standard. So that was a, a potential risk. Um, in most cases, it's not an issue, but it is a potential risk when you're traveling interstate or overseas. You need to very carefully check the quarantine regulations. Um, and sometimes, you know, doing the, the home freeze drying or, or home dehydrating rather is just not a good option. Um, I don't mind the commercially prepared meals. Yes, they are more expensive, but for me, I'm time poor. I don't have the time to rehydrate me uh, to cook rehydrated meals, and and, and dry them down, um, and uh, and I'd prefer to spend the extra dollars and save the time. Um, one of the other new pieces of equipment that I used on this uh, this hike was the Garmin Enrich Explorer SE, and I'll and as I said, I'll do a full write up of this over the next week. This replaced my little Garmin uh, uh, GPS and my personal locator beacon. Uh, and even though when you look at this unit, it's a reasonably heavy unit when you compare this to either one of those individual items I was replacing, when you add them together, it was a weight saving of about 100 grams. I did see and did seriously look at the little InReach Mini uh, and there was a reason that I opted not to go for that one, and that was to do with battery life. And if you look on Garmin's website, they will actually give a shorter battery life for the little Garmin Enrich Mini than as opposed to the Garmin. The screen is really not a usable GPS. Uh, it's a very functional um, uh, uh, emergency beacon. It's a when paired with a phone, it's a good GPS. But it means you have to pair it with a phone and you start using more battery power off the phone. Uh, and in that instance, if you're using more battery power off the phone, you then need to carry more battery pack rechargeability, which then puts the weight back up again. So it's a matter of looking at what, not just the actual unit itself, how are you going to recharge that unit? Um, there are, there are two instances where I had seven or eight days uh, away from the ability to charge electronics. So I had to be able to carry uh, my recharge uh, capability with me. Uh, and by I worked it out by going with the, uh, the InReach Explorer. It actually meant that I could get away with a smaller battery pack. And I was actually getting around about seven days before I had to recharge it. I, th I think there's some other things about... Um the choices that you make and for the for me the Garmin InReach Explorer was a much better option than your um, 
previous Garmin, and um, the reason was that um, it, it was just so much easier for me to track you on my phone. I could zoom in and uh, I could see, I could even get into seeing the kind of terrain that you were wandering through. So so for, for me sitting um, back at home, it, it was a great, great way to actually be part of uh, the journey and to get some comfort, not just in terms of you moving along and it's okay, but really understanding what was happening and the ease of that. So there are, I think there are a whole range of different reasons why you make it a particular choice and, you know, notwithstanding the things about charging and weights and all of those sorts of things, there are, there are usability aspects and there are um, sort of flow-on benefits, I think, as well, that people need to consider. And I must admit, from my perspective, the Garmin was one of the one of the, 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 the real successes of this trip. It was easy to use. Uh, it was easy to see what was going on. I did actually pair it with a phone when I was sending text messages, but otherwise I tended to use the uh, the Garmin as a standalone unit just to save battery power on the phone. Uh, phones don't tend to last eight days, not when, I'm, I'm, when you're doing the, the amount of social media that I'm doing. And and I don't feel too bad that uh, the special message that I received that said Tim wants to invite you to track him um, was actually sent to everybody in the world. But anyway, I thought, oh, isn't that lovely? That's just me. Apparently not. <laughs> everybody. <laughs> Thanks. And, and while we're talking about battery power as well, as I said, I... I had an iPad mini with me. I had a digital recorder. I had an iPhone. I had the Garmin. Um, so, and I also had the camera uh, and I had my, my Fitbit as well. So all these things potentially needed charging, particularly on the longer uh, sessions. So I did actually uh, look at options. I looked at the, the battery usage for all of these things as a whole and rather than looking at each individual item to say well this is fine but what about everything else I looked at everything together and worked out what I needed battery pack wise and managed to get away with probably a smaller battery pack than I potentially could have done had I've gone for smaller uh, more compact units themselves um, one of the other um Bigger changes on this trip as well um, was I actually changed cameras on this trip. Uh, and for the last few years, I've been using a, a Sony um, RX100 camera. Um, at the end of last year, when we did the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail, uh, the camera was damaged and um, it was unable to be repaired. And while I still think the Sony provides a far better quality images, um, certainly my new Olympus darn tough camera worked really well. It lived in my pocket. It didn't matter about the rain. And as I said, I had eight days on the entire 36 day trip where it didn't rain. Uh, so I had this camera out, rain, wind, uh, dirt, didn't worry it at all. So, um, while the, the image quality wasn't as good as the Sony, uh, it certainly was the right choice for this trip. I, Definitely wouldn't have taken anywhere near the number of photos had I still had the Sony camera with me. So that's a bit of a, a compromise issue there. Do you want really high-grade images? Um, and what what are the weather conditions going to be like? 
So it's um, I don't think there's any one camera that's going to do everything. That's going to be lightweight, waterproof, and give you really high quality images. Uh, it's a matter of picking what you're actually after. Um, most of the other gear, and probably apart from the Garmin, one of the biggest successes for me on this trip was my foot taping uh, equipment. And that involved basically uh, three sets of tape. Uh, and as I said, I'll include that in the list uh, that's available to download online. It's um, it. I've always had an issue when I doing when I'm doing repetitive days of 25 kilometer plus uh, average kilometers. I just find I get a hot spot just on the ball of my foot, just below where the toes are, uh, and that can really impact on whether I can actually successfully hike or not. And it was a real concern for me. Um, and as many of you who have been listening to this podcast would be aware, I went and saw my podiatrist before the trip. Uh, I had foot taping lessons. Um, now, at that stage, the lessons were for taping the whole foot. Um, but the podiatrist I saw said, look, really, you need to decide where you need to do. You may not need the whole foot. You may need just part of the foot. And in most cases, that's what I did. I was just ended up taping the front of the foot. Um, I did actually end up getting a, a minor infection in, in my right heel. Um, so I ended up taping my right heel for part of the trip. I don't think we need to talk any more about that. <laughs> um, and um, it's uh, it made such a big difference. So um, even almost um, almost two weeks after the trip now, I've still got a decent layer of callus across the bottom of my feet. Um, and it's going to take a few more weeks yet before a lot of the heavy callusing comes off. But by the end of it, doing 30 to 40 kilometer days, my feet were fine. And it really was down to the taping. Um, I would not have been able to do this trip in the, di- in the, the time frame that I did without that taping. Now, this is probably not an issue that everyone has problems with. Uh, and certainly from my perspective on this trip, um, most people, I believe, do the Bibbulmun track in around about 45 to 60 days on average. And I ended up doing the trip in 36 days, and that included four rest days. So it was actually 32 hiking days. Uh, and most people were very surprised at the speed that I did it and the distances that I was covering. Um, but that was just one of the, the, the way I wanted to do it. Uh, and that required me to deal with the hot spots on, the, on my feet. And I think that's, again, another one of those issues around uh, what what kind of hiking you're doing, um, issues arise for you, and how you want to deal with those issues. So, you know, there's probably not a lot of people, Tim, that would, you know, want to do 35 to 40 kilometres a day most days. No, no. And again, I think I um, there were a couple of other people that I came across that were doing those distances occasionally, but they certainly weren't doing them day in, day out over the duration of the trip. So for me, as I said, 32 days of hiking to do um, a thousand kilometres, really that was ending up being you know, <laughs> a bit nuts, uh, Tim. <laughs> yeah, an average of roughly around about 33 to 35 kilometres a day. So, um, uh, and now, uh, and I was by the certainly by the end of the trip, um, it was quite comfortable. Um, now that's probably the main pieces of gear that I sort of changed over or swapped over recently because most of the equipment that I've been using 
I've selected it over the last couple of years uh, because I know it works well. So um, there were there was nothing that really didn't work well, um, but there were a couple of issues, and this was not so much the equipment itself, but it was more based on the weather conditions that I had. I was tossing up at the start of the trip. Do I take two pairs of socks or do I take three? Um, and had I have realized that this would have been the wettest end of winter, start of spring in many, many years in this part of Western Australia, I would have definitely taken three pairs of socks. Uh, there was no way that I could have a dry pair of socks um, uh, and then a wet pair of socks drying on the outside of the pack. The weather just wouldn't permit that. Um, so and you know when I did get sunlight, it was going to take a couple of days for socks to dry. So in hindsight, three pairs of socks is the way to go, unless I'm in very dry conditions where I know I'm not going to get wet feet. So as I said, I've now included three pairs of socks in my my hiking rotation rather than two. And the other thing that you haven't mentioned that that was the great hack was the bulldog clip. That's true. Um, I um. Sometimes you just look at how, what other options you can do with, with getting things to work the way you particularly want them. Um, I use a, a Marmot Precip jacket, um, and I tend to wear a baseball cap style of cap underneath that. Um, and what I tend to find with that is, um, the reason for wearing the cap is that if I don't wear the cap, you end up getting water running down the front of your face when it is torrential rain. So the cap just tends to keep the water out of your eyes and your face. Um, because um, if you just have the, the, the cloth material of the cap sticking out by itself, it tends to get saturated and then it tends to start seeping onto your face and onto your head. So what I ended up doing was just using a metal bulldog clip. I'd actually stretch the um, the front of the, the, the jacket hood uh, onto the front of the, the cap and just clip it there. Which means that mean that means that the cap itself was staying dry, um, and also providing a bit more of waterproofing in in the face area. Um, so for the sake of a fifty cent bulldog clip, it worked really well. Looks odd, and I did have to actually explain it on my very first uh, video of the trip because I thought if I don't, people are going to say what is this clip and why. Uh, and a number of other people have said thank you because they've actually started doing the same thing. So it looks odd, but it works really well. Uh, and I'll put that up as a uh, a hiking hack over the next couple of weeks. Um, gear fails. Um, so apart from not having enough socks, I think um, one of the other things that didn't work so well for me was that I was trying to use a soft water bottle which with a built-in filter. Uh, and this was the Life Straw. Um, and the Life Straw as a filter soft filter bottle works really well um it, yeah it's that's what it's designed for and it works well but it's not designed to be used as a water filter where you squeeze the life out of it to fill up a water bladder so it worked well for about 10 days and then i actually split the actual soft water bottle uh, so for the rest of the trip i wasn't filtering water i was just drinking water out of the tanks at uh, that time of the year, not a problem, but I've been told by a number of people, as you get into summer, the water gets pretty revolting, um, and you definitely need to filter it later in the year. Uh, life straw um, are going through and um, 
in their newer kits, providing a wider, uh, more accessible kit that will allow people to go through and use these as filters. Uh, but the very narrow uh, uh, sipping straw that's on the, the bottles now um, isn't designed to be used as a squeezable water filter um, and certainly doesn't work particularly well. Usually I, uh, I would use the Catadine Be Free for that, that function because it does have a very wide um, tube that the water comes out without exerting much pressure at all. But I just couldn't find it. <laughs> we've lost it. <laughs> we've lost it. It's somewhere amongst all our equipment. And I'm sure I'll find it if I do, do, do go looking for it, but we just couldn't find it. So that was a bit of a fail there. And again, it's not because of the equipment itself. It's me using it for a function for what it wasn't designed for. Um, one of the things I've included in my uh, hiking gear list is a thing called swap outs. And this is um, a, uh, some pieces of equipment that I don't use all the time. I use occasionally. And this includes a fairly decent quality set of gaiters, uh, a broad-brimmed hat, different um, uh, 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 tent pegs, um, things like um, a head net. Uh, and they tend to be used at certain times of the year in certain conditions. In most cases, I don't use a heavy gauge gaiter. Um, I um, have had no issues with snakes in the past. I always use long pants and fairly heavy-duty pants, uh, and I wear lighter weight gaiters more to keep the sand and dirt and ticks out more than anything else. Uh, but there are some places I do hike where snakes are a concern, and that's when I get up, go on to the heavier gauge gaiters uh, just as a bit of preventative just there. And again, for the entire trip on the Bibbulmun track, at the time of the year I did it, saw no snakes whatsoever. Uh, whereas a few weeks after, a few weeks later, the snakes are out in force and they're all over the place. So again, had I done it at this time of the year, I would have been likely to wear a heavier gauge set of gaiters. So it really is horses for courses. Um, one of the things I'll say with this gear list, this is my gear list. It suits me. It suits my requirements. It suits the sort of hiking that I do. So one of the reasons I've put this up is more to say that this is a starting point for people. Um, it may or may not suit everybody. And in fact, some of the pieces of equipment you look at and say, no, it doesn't suit me at all. And I'll give you an example here. I uh, use the North Face Thermable Hoodie Jacket. It's a synthetic um, uh, down jacket. Um, it's designed to keep you warm even when it gets sopping wet. Um, and when I looked at when I bought this, I looked at a couple of other options, and really what it came down to was comfort. The other options that were readily available on the market just weren't anywhere near as comfortable. Uh, so that pushed me in the direction of the North Face Thermoball rather than some of the other options that I did look at. Uh, and again, these are options that are really popular at the moment, really well known, but just didn't fit my body shape and size. I was in between sizes and it just didn't feel right. So as I said, I'll provide this as a downloadable list on the show notes. Um, use this as a guide um, uh, as far as what you can look at carrying. You may decide you'll drop things out. Um, I carry hand sanitizer. I always will. One of the biggest causes of stomach upsets on the trail is poor toilet hygiene. Um, and this is from information and studies that have come out of the US. 
Uh, I know a number of people don't use hand sanitizer, but I'm just not willing to take the the risk on that. I'll drink untreated water, but I'm not going to go through and not clean my hands after I've been to the toilet. So again, some people will use it, some don't. Um, and there's a number of other things in this list where people might say, why would you bother? Or this doesn't work for me. And that's fine. As I said, it's, it's a list that works for me. Uh, and it's been put together over a period of about two and a half years and works really well. Over the next week, as I said, there's a number of pieces of equipment on this list where I haven't done uh, reviews of. I've actually done the reviews. I just haven't written them up. So uh, that's my job over the next week is to get the, the remainder of the reviews out there. And there's some really good gear that I've used uh, uh, for this trip uh, that I haven't used in the past that I've been really happy with. A number of pieces of clothing and just small accessories that worked really well for me. So as I said, that will all be up online over the next week. Okay, in next week's episode, we're actually going back to our regular um, uh, podcast production schedule, and that's going to be every fortnight with an additional bonus episode once a month uh, now that the Bibbleman Track trip is over. Episode 83, due for release in two weeks' time, is care and maintenance for hiking gear. And we're going to go through and look at what you need to do to look after this product or these assets that you bought and collected and how to get the best life out of them uh, and to keep them working as long as you possibly can. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, As always, you can listen through our website at Australian Hiker, through SoundCloud, through Stitcher and iTunes. And if you have the opportunity, please go through and give us a five-star rating on iTunes to help get the message out there. We hope you've enjoyed. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me.